Welcome to Uncovered, the podcast series that goes behind the headlines to give you an in-depth look at the stories that matter. I'm Kelly Crichton and on each episode I'll be joined by the National World reporters who are working to bring information to light and hold those in power accountable. We'll be revealing the journalistic work that goes into the team's investigations and highlighting some important stories we think you need to know about but have gone uncovered in the wider media. Today I'm joined by Harriet Clugston, who has been taking a closer look at the levelling up white paper which was recently published by the government. It set out a number of ambitious targets for levelling up, all to be achieved by 2030. These include closing the gap in healthy life expectancy, improving people's pride of place in the communities around them, lifting up housing standards in the private rented sector and reducing adult illiteracy. The plan, however, contains no reference to new money to achieve all of this. It also doesn't mention council finances. Hi, Harriet. Can you start by telling us what exactly is meant by levelling up? Hello, Kelly. Yeah, it's a good question. I think levelling up is a much touted but ill-defined phrase, at least until now. And the government has never previously really explained exactly what it meant when it said it wanted to level up. But at its core, it's really about closing gaps between living standards and opportunities across the UK. Now, the UK is actually a tremendously unequal country, more so than other comparative countries. We've got this economic powerhouse in London and the southeast, but other cities and towns right across the country, but specifically in the north as well, haven't shared in that success and productivity there remains really low. So the resultant gaps between the haves and the have-nots are everywhere. We've got gaps in wages, gaps in education and the number of adults who don't have any qualifications, gaps in life expectancy and healthy life expectancy, gaps in the quality of public transport, in housing, in digital connectivity, the list just goes on. So the government has now set out 12 core missions, which it says will have status in law, that really define what it wants to achieve on levelling up and how to close some of those gaps in the next eight years. So this white paper lists all the things that are going to be done to bring change and a more fairer society. Yet there's no financial assistance to do this for the councils, who are often those expected to administer and deliver changes in local communities. Can you tell us more about the difficulty with this? Yeah, so as you said at the start, the white paper doesn't contain any new money. So there's all these ambitions to achieve, but no new resources to do it with. One of the core levelling up missions that the government has set out is for more devolution. So it does acknowledge that local areas have a big role to play in achieving levelling up. The Institute for Public Policy Research North, a think tank, says there's an elephant in the room here. And that elephant is local authority finances. Now, it says the government has failed to acknowledge that councils have endured years of savage cuts under austerity, which has left them with much depreciated capacity to deliver services for local people. And that's including in these left behind communities the government says it wants to help. And billions upon billions of pounds of central government funding for councils was stripped away during the decade of austerity. And as a result, councils, they're more reliant on council tax and they're making steep hikes to the amount that residents pay. But they've also made drastic cuts to spending, even as demand for expensive services like adult social care has skyrocketed. Uh, And in reality, much of the government's stated ambitions will probably fall on council's shoulders to deliver, whether that's adult education or on housing, which is its responsibility, street cleanliness, town centre regeneration, etc. So how can they achieve this without any new money and without the government reversing austerity and returning the money it took away? That is the big question. 
We gave the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities the opportunity to comment on this question of local authority financing, but they did not respond. I spoke to Jonathan Webb, who is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research North, about why he thinks local authorities have a key role to play in achieving the government's levelling up agenda and why funding is such a problem for them. Fundamentally, levelling up is an agenda that is focused on closing divides between places. That means because it focuses on that local level, you can't really do it without local government having you know, a sufficient role. The problem at the minute is there isn't really an explicit acknowledgement that actually local government has been impacted by, you know, a decade of austerity, very significant cuts to local government, and actually a failure to really acknowledge that what's being offered through the levelling up agenda isn't a sufficient replacement for long-term and sufficient government financing. So we show in our research, for example, that if you look at something like the Leveling Up Fund, if you were to break that down per person in the North in terms of per person spending, that works out at about £32 per person. In comparison, if we look at changes to annual council service spending, so the money that local government can spend on their services, that's decreased from 2010 to 2020 by about £413 per person. So there's a massive gap there. And the reason that's important is we can't expect any of this agenda to be realised if we don't give local government the resources they need to do it. So a really good example is in the levelling up white paper, it speaks a lot about pride in place. A big part of pride in place is things like local parks. The vast majority of parks are maintained and run by local government. They've seen their parks budget slashed. So if you're not going to support local government to do those things, you're not going to really achieve any of those objectives. You gave the example of parks and how uh, that's relevant to the, the pride of place that people might feel. What are some other examples of the ways in which councils influence people's lives in ways that tally up with the government's stated aims of levelling up? But for instance, the, the things that come to my mind um, when reading about levelling up rhetoric might be adult education to help with uh, skilling up and, and closing gaps in skills and attainment, could be ensuring children get a good start in life through sure start centres, that kind of thing all seems quite relevant to levelling up. What are some other ways in which they can practically influence the agenda? Yeah, I think it really is all all encompassing the way that local government influences this agenda and is, you know, should be a key partner in terms of delivering it. So, you know, it's about adult education and skills, as, as you pointed out. It's about coordinating that skill system, but also making sure local skill systems speak to the needs of uh, local employment opportunities. Because, you know, for all this talk about, you know, investing in innovation and creating new jobs in the North, there's not really much point in doing that if it's not local people who can also benefit from some of that opportunity. All you end up doing is, you know, moving wealth around, not creating new wealth because you're not seeing, you know, people who would previously not have had access to those opportunities able to actually seize those opportunities. So there's kind of that kind of skills point on how that links into the local economy. But then there's also a lot of more fundamental stuff linked to service provision. So again, we've had a lot about housing in the leveling up white paper. A lot of stuff there in terms of kind of bringing up standards in the private rented sector, investing in new homes, a lot of that, the responsibility and the delivery will be on local government. You know, if you speak to anyone in local government when it comes to standards in the private rented sector, 
actually, it's not a case that legislation at the minute is, is that bad. It's a case they don't have any enforcement capacity. So you'll normally have one person, maybe two people responsible for an entire local authority area in terms of kind of following up with poor housing standards in the private rented sector and trying to take enforcement action. And, you know, that isn't really appreciated in the white paper. If I was, you know, an officer working in that role, I would be thinking, well, it's all well and good that central government wants us to bring private rented homes up to this standard by this date. But how's it going to happen? Because it's me and one other person and there's hundreds of thousands of homes in our local authority. So it's it's those sorts of service delivery questions which, you know, come into play. And I think that's where the 2030 objectives have a slight contradiction about them in that on the one hand, it's positive that they're really ambitious. So some of the things in there around, you know, closing gaps between healthy life expectancy, they're really ambitious. But if we're going to do that in the time frame, which is up to 2030, you're going to have to put significant resources into local health systems. Again, a lot of that is under the responsibility of local government officials who also, you know, they don't just have powers there. They play a key coordinating role. So I think really it's understanding that whilst you've got the ambition there, you can't really achieve any of this without local government because ultimately a lot of the responsibilities for delivering on it will fall with local government. And what what you're doing at the minute is asking local government to achieve very ambitious things with zero new resources and actually less resources in real terms than they would have had in 2010. Can you tell us how much the government has cut funding by? Yeah, so it's actually quite difficult to look at funding over time because there was uh, big changes to the system, which means that looking at figures for before 2015 and after 2015 is, is quite difficult. You're not comparing exactly like with like. But the, the clever people at the National Audit Office, which is the government spending watchdog, they published a report in 2018 in which they estimated that central government funding for councils had almost halved between 2010 and 2017. They didn't publish any underlying figures, though, so we can't see um, how much exactly money was involved in that. We just get this percentage change. But the House of Commons Library collects data from the government for 2015-16 onwards, and we've had a look at that. It might be worth just quickly explaining how councils are funded. So councils get three main sources of funding, central government grants, business rates and council tax. So every year, the government announces how much money is available for councils for the year ahead. Mm -hmm. And a main part of this is called the settlement funding assessment. Now that incorporates business rates and part of the central government funding known as the revenue support grant, which is the main part of funding that is not ring fenced, which councils can spend on whatever services they want to. So our analysis of the House of Commons Library shows that this uh, funding between 2015-16 and 2020-21, councils in England lost £9.3 billion, or 41.6% in real terms. That's the equivalent of £163.91 less per person in England based on Office for National Statistics 2020 population estimates. And those cuts ranged from 9.2% to 56.2% depending on the council. So that is a huge loss without even taking account of the years before 2015 when austerity was first being implemented and by all accounts was a lot tougher. There is another measure we can look at as well, which is known as spending power. So that's how much councils have to spend on services once council taxes are taken into account and also 
most of the other government funding is taken into account too. So this includes specific grants, which are intended for specific things, such as the social care grant, or um, grants that are pegged to a local authority's performance in an area of policy, like the new homes bonus, which rewards them for building new houses. So House of Commons data on spending power, our analysis of that shows that it fell by £2.2 billion, or 4.6%, between 2015-16 and 2020-21 in real terms. Do we know how this will impact on the public? Well, I think most people will probably have noticed their council tax bills going up over the last decade. So as uh, the government has made cuts to the core funding for councils, the proportion of council spending power that is funded by us as council taxpayers has risen. And according to the government's annual estimates of local authority spending power, council tax accounted for 49% of that in 2015, but that had risen to 60% by 2020. The government has actually just finalised local government funding for the next year, and those figures show a projected cash increase of 7.4% to spending power for next year, without adjusting for inflation though. However, the problem with that is that these spending power forecasts assume that councils will put council tax up by the maximum amount that they're allowed to annually, without holding a referendum. So it's predicated on tax rises for residents, And that's during the cost of living crisis, of course. The Local Government Association says this leaves councils facing a tough choice this year about whether to increase tax bills to bring in desperately needed funding, but at a time when they are acutely aware of the burden that would place on some households struggling with food and energy costs. This plan to make councils self-sufficient, does that mean central funding will no longer exist in the future? That is the plan, yeah. Many councils, actually, they've already had their revenue support grant reduced to nothing already. But ultimately, the government plan is to get rid of that grant completely. Part of this rests on the idea of 100% business rate retention, where 100% of business rates are retained locally rather than the 50% that we have at the moment. But I think the question that we should be asking ourselves based on the evidence, is this necessarily about councils being self-reliant or is it about councils being reliant on us, the paying public? Now, this Conservative government says that it's a party of low taxes, But in reality, it appears that they're about passing the buck on tax to councils and on to council taxpayers, perhaps safe in the knowledge that residents blame their council, not the central government, for those tax increases. And the data shows that we're all paying more for council services through our tax, but we're actually paying more for less. So during the decade of austerity, councils have made big cutbacks on their spending. We had a look at Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities data Um, on council spending and after adjusting for inflation we found that councils cut spending on services from 79.1 billion pounds to 72.4 billion pounds between 2010 and 2020 which is a reduction of 8.5 percent in real terms so spending in 2020-2021 was 6.7 billion pounds lower in real terms which is the equivalent of 118 pounds 91 less per person And this actually will also include some emergency COVID spending that's been captured at the back end of March 2021. So if it hadn't have been for that, the cut over that 11-year period would have been bigger still. And while spending has started to rise again since 2018, it's just not risen anywhere near enough to get back to 2010 levels. And I should probably mention as well that IPPR North Research has found that spending cuts were most severe in the north of England. 
Some might suggest that all we need to do to return services to 2010 levels is to put back the money councils have cut. But you've found the solution isn't that simple. Yeah, that's right. That's something I'm really conscious of when looking at these figures is that it isn't just a case of putting back what has been lost. So if we take a step back and we look at what else has been happening over the last 10 years, we've had population growth. So there's more people. The population has been ageing. And that means more older adults are needing social care, which councils pay for. There have been huge increases in the number of children in care, which is a really expensive area for councils. Um, and also the National Audit Office in its 2018 report on council finances highlighted that there have been huge increases in homelessness support and relief that councils provide to residents. So all of this has increased demand on councils. And councils haven't been cutting services uniformly. So listeners might remember the last time I joined you to talk about the children's social care sector, we discussed how councils have been pumping a greater proportion of their resources towards the services that they've got to provide by law, like for looked after children or child safeguarding, while at the same time making deep cuts to discretionary services that they don't legally have to provide, but which are still important, like youth services. So all this means that in light of the big increases in demand, if we were to have maintained the same level of services we enjoyed in 2010, we would probably have to have seen above inflation increases in spending to keep up with demand. So in reality, the cuts are probably bigger than they first appeared just by looking at the reduction in spending. Whilst no new money has been mentioned in this white paper, what funding has been allocated to it in the past? So over the past few years, the government has announced new pots of money to support its levelling up agenda. This includes the Leveling Up Fund, the Future High Streets Fund, the UK Community Renewal Fund and the Towns Deal Fund. And to date, our analysis shows that £4.7 billion has been awarded across these four schemes to different councils in England. Now that £4.7 billion pales in significance when you compare it to the money the government has taken from councils. So remember, £9.3 billion is the amount that went between 2015-16 and 2020-21 before you even consider the billions that were taken before 2015. But I think we also need to consider the type of money that this is. So on the one hand, it is about one-off pots of funding rather than long-term sustainable funding that councils can draw on. There's also a distinction between capital funding and revenue funding. Now, most of the the new money the government has announced is for capital projects. So that is what you spend on assets that last, like restoring buildings or regenerating a high street, rather than on sort of day-to-day core services. So to give an example, if a council were to build a road, that would be capital spending. But if it were to employ a road sweeper to look after that road, that's revenue spending. And most of the cuts, well, all the cuts we've been talking about so far are to revenue spending. So the new money doesn't replace the the revenue spending that's been lost. And there's also an issue here of councils being forced to compete for this new money, which IPPR North argues disadvantages some of the least affluent councils because they've got the least amount of resources to put into creating nice, shiny plans to present to the government to secure that funding. Now, I spoke to Jonathan Webb about this new money and about whether it can ever compensate for the money that's been lost. I think a lot of people in local government will probably say they're welcome to the extent that we'll we'll take what we can get because there's never anything on offer. So if something is on offer, we don't really have a choice but to bid into these things. But I think in terms of the actual resources, they simply don't offer enough. So our analysis shows that levelling up fund is worth about £32 per person in the North England map, you know, 
it goes without saying that isn't a life-changing sum of money that isn't really going to shift the dial in the way that the levelling up white paper claims that this government wants to. What we're doing is we're switching from a model where we, we used to just fund local government on the basis of this is how much resources a local area needs to run its core services to a model where we expect local government to submit bids to central government to access the resources they previously would have been given. And that that isn't really a good way to run it, first of all, because it's not particularly fair. Secondly, we shouldn't be making this about competition. Actually, if we make it about competition between places, we're not actually going to level up because all that's going to happen is we'll create some winners and there'll be a lot of losers. So I think as well where they're also problematic is, first of all, they're not holistic. So you have a pot of money for particular things, but a lot of it is very much focused on capital investments. So things like regenerating high streets, regenerating town centres. And we know, you know, evidence shows us that none of that is sustainable. And I think I've done a lot of research on this in recent years, unless you have the wider economy to support that. So there's no good putting money into a high street to regenerate it if people in that local area, they don't actually have any money to spend it on the high street because what you're doing is you're creating something which simply isn't compatible with the wages and the incomes of local people. And then before you know it, you go back to the old model of instead of having, you know, the nice independent shops in kind of the diverse high street, which offers culture, retail, all that other stuff, you go back to the model where all the high street can sustain is, you know, cheap businesses which appeal to people who don't necessarily have lots of money but actually they provide goods that they need at a relatively low price so i think that example sort of shows again that what these funds don't do is they don't they don't necessarily target some of the systemic causes of decline in a lot of places so you know kind of more profound changes to the economy in recent decades, um, the erosion of the local state unable to provide support for people who need it. And really that's where kind of this ambitious investment in core local government funding comes into play because, you know, places being left behind, to use that terminology, it's often the outcome of quite a complex array of things. It's, you know, economic opportunity on offer, it's housing, it's whether there's youth services available for people to do things after school or actually there's nothing to do. So, you know, people have to congregate out on the streets and, you know, the impact that then has on place and people then begin to lose pride in place. So these things are all interlinked as the white paper identifies. But the problem is the funding pots available are simply capital funds to do, you know, essentially kind of regeneration and other soft infrastructure projects. I think it is very problematic the way they're trying to fund this agenda. And, and if we are to see leveling up, we, we've got to really shift away from this, this bidding process and this competitive process as soon as we can. Thank you for joining me today, Harriet. You can find more on this story on nationalworld.com. I'll be back again soon with more analysis of the stories that matter.